Okay, uh, we've, we're starting, we started last Sunday a new series that Emily has uh, uh, conceived and it's titled Understanding Our Limits, Humility as the Path to Love. So while Emily was preaching last Sunday and I, I highly recommend it because it frames the whole concept of humility and does some work about, you know, how humility can be used to kind of like subjugate and a correct understanding of humility, whatnot. But I think Emily was talking about the Genesis 1 story and that we're, we're from the earth. And an, an odd idea popped into my head and I couldn't shake it, so I just did it. And don't mock me, but I filled one of my mother's um, English teacups with dirt and I did my little morning prayer routine with my hand in the dirt for the length of time that I take to pray. And I think, yeah, I did this all week. Yesterday, I think I looped, you can't always get what you want for like 10 or 15, 20 minutes while I had my hand in the dirt. And that was good. It was like good for like connecting with an understanding like at a more emotional level, my, my limits, my humble origins from dirt you came to dirt you will return. And the, the thing that Emily just mentioned in passing that... Um, me, it got me thinking during the sermon a lot was um, how humility means not like not being a hero like it's different than the heroic ideal and I realized like what a burden so many of us myself absolutely included carry trying to like be heroes you know in my family system um, I took the role of family hero. This was, I don't know, years ago. We were talking about uh, adult children of alcoholics and had all these family roles. My family role was the family hero. My, my dad had untreated depression. He lost his law license after failing to file taxes. And he had worked for the Treasury Department, the IRS, as his first lawyer job. My grandfathers had similar kind of struggles. I was like, in that era, you know, like the, the, the men, the boys, of the family were carrying on the family name was the idea so like my dad was the last Wilson in his line I know there's a lot of Wilsons but like in his line he was the last Wilson and then I was the last Wilson male in my line and you know my sisters are chopped liver I guess in terms of the line but patriarchy is what it is and but I had, I had this feeling like oh I, I've, I've got to like make up for the like lack of success in the in the family line. Um, my childhood, as I thought about it, um, in the 1950s, we were so shaped by the heroic, romanticized war stories of our fathers, you know, fighting in the good war, how America saved the world from tyranny. And, you know, next up is we're going to make humanity proud by sending a man to the moon. And, and then it's the, like, it's God, it's the age of Aquarius, and and we're gonna again, we're gonna change the world. Things are gonna we're gonna turn things upside down. You know, my generation, the Boomers, I think we were the first generation to tell their kids they could do anything they wanted to do. The most patently false advice you could give a human <laughs> being is that you can do anything that you want to do. And then I, I found myself like caught up in the fervor of a certain brand of Christi Christianity. We would call it renewalist Christianity. I was, I mentioned before, as part of a charismatic community here in, the, in uh, Ann Arbor that had like international fame at the time. It was on the vanguard of the 
charismatic renewal of the Catholic Church. And, and I, I didn't join denominations. I joined movements, you know, movements who are like here to change the world. It was like all steeped in this like heady, heroic stuff. Um, when you think about it, the heroic ideals, they, they affect many uh, expectations in lots of different fields. I was talking to Tanya Lurman who came to speak once and I took her out for lunch and she's a, a faculty at, um, an anthropologist at Stanford and she said, oh my gosh, these kids at Stanford, I'd feel so sorry for them like they're they all like they they're just the great achievers in their in their you know elite high schools and and then they come to Stanford and they're just also rands and 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 now the standard of success isn't like all A's and be part of every club but you know and it's not just good enough to get some important skill and use it in your life in a company or an organization but the the, the standard of success is is innovating the next big idea and turning it into the next Apple or the next, you know, Facebook or the next Amazon. Um, you know, Western culture is shaped by the Greek culture historically and, and that's, the Greek culture really exported this heroic ideal. The Greek and the Roman gods were like manifestations of the values of Greek culture, different ones. Uh, but we're absolutely pickled in the ideal, uh, the heroic ideal too. I mean, all, all the big movie franchises that make a lot of money, Lion King, Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter, Matrix, Men in Black, Star Wars, the, you know, whatever the latest superhero franchise is, Superwoman was an awesome movie. Um, they're all a take on the uh, hero's journey myth, right? Um, so we're, we're saturated with the heroic ideal. And, you know, the temptation when that's like the sea in which you swim is you're tempted to like daydream of doing, you know, like significance is all about doing great things. And then you just, by inattention, you downplay like ordinary acts of service, what our Jewish brothers and sisters call mitzvah, you know, just acts of righteousness that help other people. And all the little things go undone. I, I think this is a temptation more of the liberal than of the conservative. You know, I'll, I'll cop to being a liberal. You know, we like grand solutions to big problems. You know, the war on poverty and studies and a comprehensive approach. And like some things really need that, like climate change and others. But, but conservatives outgive liberals by a substantial margin. I think it's like threefold or fourfold, correcting for, um, you know, income differences. But according to your, your means, giving way more conservatives do than political liberals. You know how the president and the vice president have to release their tax uh, forms or used to back in the day when we were, you know, affected by all these quaint norms of transparency. So Joe Biden, who knew he had to release his tax form, he comes out with his tax form, you know, Joe Biden, he gave 1.5% of his income to charity. And, you know, he's probably thinking, hey, I'm advocating like public policies to help the poor and disadvantaged. And, but, you know, like you could also be generous yourself with your, <laughs> your stuff. You know, Jesus said those who are faithful in little things, like close at hand, 
will be given the opportunity to be faithful in bigger things that extend from there. So, you know, with my hand uh, in my mother's dirt-filled teacup, I found myself uh, questioning the heroic ideal, wondering if it wasn't like a, like a little cultural crack cocaine, like just, just another dopamine substitute that keeps us from real joy. So the, the origin stories of Genesis off, offer a very different picture of humanity than we get from the Greek heroic ideal. And in the pictures of the Genesis origin stories, our significance as human beings isn't tied to like grand accomplishments, but are integrated with our close-at-hand connections. So if you're ready, we'll do a romp through the three separate creation stories in Genesis, but I mainly want to focus on the third one, which you probably don't even know about. Um, the first um, one, I, I want to orient you to these stories um, with a, a word from uh, Leon Cass. Kind of sounds like a southern gospel rock band, Leon Cass. Um, he's a, he's a, from the University of Chicago, a Jewish scholar who's like spent his life uh, with the book of Genesis, teaching the book of Genesis at the University of Chicago. He's wrote a gro- great little book on Genesis called Genesis, the Beginning of Wisdom. And he says this about like the, especially the early stories in the book of Genesis. We can learn most from these stories by regarding them as a mythical yet realistic portrait of permanent truths about our humanity rather than as a historical yet idealized portrait of a blissful past we once enjoyed but lost. So a mythical yet realistic portrait of permanent truth. So myth is like the container, but truth and connection to the wisdom and the reality of who we are as human beings, that's what he's talking about. So M hit the first one uh, last Sunday, which is Genesis 1. The humans arrive on day six in that poetic six-day structure of creation, right? But we are created along with the wild animals and the creepy crawly things, the land-based animals that it says the earth brought forth. So we don't even have like a special day of creation, but we're part of like mammalian life and reptilian life emerging as it's pictured there from the earth. We, we have a divine connection though. We're in the image and likeness of God, but we arise from the dirt. The second creation story, uh, the Garden of Eden, that's in Genesis 2 and 3, is a standalone. It doesn't fit with Genesis 1. It's, it's jarringly different in some key details so that we're to treat it as a standalone story. The, the location of the Garden of Eden is purposefully mythical. So they talk about four uh, rivers, the Tigris, the Euphrates, the uh, Gion, and it probably wasn't pronounced like that. They weren't French. uh, And Pishon. (laughs) These four uh, rivers exist, but they don't actually intersect anywhere on planet Earth. And the early readers would have understood that. So they understood that the story was talking about an unplace or a no place or an imaginary place. Place. Our word for that is utopia, like no place or unplace. So that the text itself is, is giving us the signals about 
what it is and how it's to be read. So the dirt is even more prominent in the second creation story. And just, just a word in defense of dirt. Um, you know, our, our culture makes us like not want to touch dirt because we're like hyper into um, hygiene and you know you get dirt on your hands and then you're going to put it on your pants and then you're going to you know you're going to look like you have dirty pants and you know like we don't like dirt but we're we really like we were evolved to like dirt like when human beings have their hands in dirt your endorphins get released and your oxytocin your bonding hormones get released and it's like nature's way you know that the hunt early hunter gatherers are our uh, ancestors were foragers mainly and so that they that mainly they just went around scrounging around in the dirt for tubers i'm i'm from the city i don't know what even know what a tuber is it's i'm thinking maybe it's like a beet or something like that or does anyone know what a tube what's that potatoes are tubers so yeah look yeah that's mainly where our ancestors got their got their food and so evolution is like encouraging them by giving them a little high when they've got their hands in dirts because it's good for their survival you have to excuse me I read a whole book on dirt it was called dirt <laughs> no, I'm, uh, you know, it's like oh god I'm mansplaining so this is, the, this is the part in Genesis 2 and 3 of our origin, the second origin story. Then the Lord God, and that's the proper name for God, first time it appears, Yahweh, I am who am. Then the Lord God formed or fashioned human, the Hebrew is Adam. It's not a proper noun, I think as Emily pointed out. It's not a person's name in this context, but a, wor a word that just means human. Then the Lord God formed human from the dust. Hebrew is Adama. So there's a play on words, say, ha, ha, ha. Adam from Adama. It's, it's, it really gets you, really grabs you when you know Hebrew. <laughs> um, so it's like dirt man from the dirt and breathed into his nostrils, Yahweh did, the breath of life. And the human became a living being a nefesh, a, a soul. So um, for our serendipity duda moms who are watching online, we know it, we, we have a number of moms of LGBTQ kids and they're often from conservative religious backgrounds. So they're part of the secret Facebook group and then a number of them are connected to our church so they watch online. But especially you serendipity duda moms who have gender fluid or trans children. Um, which you probably didn't hear in church is that most Jewish commentators say that Adam is not gendered. So it was understood that Adam, especially in this context, was, uh, what's the word? Um, uh, it starts with an A. No, no, A. Uh, androgynous, yes, was androgynous. Um, and that he, that Adam, like, comprises within... Actually, himself is not the right pronoun here, given who Adam is. Themself would be like a better translation. Themself, uh, like the entire gender uh, spectrum of humanity. Remember in the story later, the woman is pulled out from the side of Adam. The rib is, you know, one translation. So even there, it's not like Adam is like separated into his two halves, masculine and 
feminine, the binary, but just a piece is pulled out of Adam, and that's woman. So you could conceive of other beings pulled out of Adam who are differently gendered. And, and so your gender fluid and transgender kids are as legitimately part of God's uh, good and beloved humanity as any of us, and that's in the Bible, B-I-B-L-E. But what we all share uh, as human beings in this origin story is our position, like where we're placed. And your position is different. You kind of like relax into your position. You, you don't like strive to achieve your position. You participate, you lean into your position. And our position in this story is that we're creatures who stand between like the dirt and the divine. Like that's a, that's a pretty interesting space to occupy. We're, we're the creatures who stand between the dirt and the divine. And so our significance is not our like heroic accomplishments, which may or may not happen or may, may or not come away, but, but in our close at hand connection and our like participation, we're participating in the planet throbbing with life experiment that is going on all around us and we like pop into existence as part of this big wonderful experiment it's not like the whole universe is saying ah it's Gretchen you know it's like it's like humanity is part of this much bigger drama and we're all little pieces of that big drama we're not glory generators in other words, that's the high, your heroic I ideal. We're not glory generators, but we participate in something that is, you could say, glorious or wonderful or mind-blowing. So the Eden story, you, you might remember, ends with a human return to, to dirt. Uh, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread and, until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken... You are dust, and to dust you shall return. The graveside um, part of the Bible that we've heard there. So, but remember, this story um, came from the Babylonian exile. So th these oral stories were kind of pulled together around 500 B.C. So the people who pulled these stories together were totally familiar with the Greek heroic ideal. And the Israelites um, had a longing in Babylon and the longing was for return. They wanted to return to their land and they thought of the land of Israel as like their land, their piece of turf. So this has a different ring to it, doesn't it? They're returning to the earth. It's, it's not horrible, but it's a kind of hopeful illusion. So Ezekiel, the um, prophet, around that time um, had this vision of the dry bones. Ezekiel's, you know, in the in the in the in the valley. I was starting to think, sing a different Ezekiel song there. That's why I stopped. Uh, also to spare you my singing a song. Um, but Ezekiel's dry bones vision is oh the neck bones connected to the shoulder bone. That's the one. Um, anticipates a reanimating breath, right? So the dry bones are animated by a divine breath, by the wind. And that's like a harbinger of resurrection. So 
in that sense, in, the, in this mindset, resurrection, which seems to us like that's just a bizarre, like just like some weird thing that people hope happens. It's, but if this is your origin story, that you came from the dirt, you were fashioned from the dirt, and then you were animated by a breath from Yahweh, and then you were a living nefesh. If, you, if that's what your origin story is, then the idea of being reanimated after returning to the earth is not, not so bizarre. If it happened once, it can happen again sort of thing. So such were my thoughts as I sat there with my hand in my mother's teacup uh, filled with dirt. She died in 1984. But there's also a third creation story in Genesis. <laughs> I feel so pleased with myself to bring this up because if you read through Genesis, I'm going to read through the Bible. You know, I'm going to start. The Bible is a hallmark of the Western literary tradition. I should at least read the darn things. I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to start with Genesis 1, and you will stub your toe on Genesis chapter 5 if you haven't stubbed your toe already. And you're going to go, What? This is the hallmark of the Western literary tradition because in Genesis 5 you find your first genealogy. We all love the genealogies in the Bible, don't we? Listen to this genealogy. I'm, I'm going to spare you. I'm only going to read maybe a third of this one. But it's a third creation story. I think I had some glasses here. I might need them. So this is the book of the lineage of Adam. On the day God created the human in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and called their name humankind on the day where they were created. So this is a third origin story. And Adam lived 130 years, and he begot in his likeness by his image and called his name Seth. Remember that name, Seth. And the days of Adam after he begot Seth were 800 years, and he begot sons and daughters. And all the days Adam lived were 930 years. Then he died. And Seth lived 105 years, and he begot Enosh. And Seth lived after he begot Enosh 807 years. Apparently, they had some pretty effective forms of birth control in that period. It took him 105 years before he begot Enosh. Then he lived 807 years after that. Then he died. And all the days of Seth were 912 years. Then he died. And Enosh lived 90 years and he begot Kenan. And this is when you start saying, please, stop. Stop. Tell me what I have to do to get you to stop reading this. But wait, there's a lot more, which I'm going to spare you from. What do you, what do you notice? The ridiculous lifespans. Oh, my God. Remember, Leon Cass, we can learn most from these stories by regarding them as a mythical yet realistic portrait of permanent truths about our humanity rather than as a historical yet idealized portrait of a blissful past we once enjoyed but lost. So Cass says the Israelites loved genealogies. Like a genealogy is what you inserted into the text to keep people with you, to, to perk them up because the genealogy was like a puzzle. 
and there was like a secret message in the puzzle but you had to decode it like the genealogy of Jesus and Matthew there's four women in the genealogy and oh it's interesting it's, it's Rahab and Ruth and Tamar and they're all a little bit loose on the sexual side kind of women in the Bible and so there's a little ooh, there's a little you know interesting thing there in the genealogy that you would otherwise miss so Cass uh, decodes this brilliantly. He, he reminds us that Adam and Eve had two previous sons, right? Cain and Abel. Cain murders Abel and is sent far away into exile. He's separated from his family forever. So Adam and Eve are tragically empty nesters. They've lost both of their sons. They conceive again and Seth appears. So Seth is like the beginning of a whole new line of humanity. Um, and Genesis frames uh, chapter 5 as a third creation story. So Cass sees this third creation story as a critique of the heroic ideal of surrounding Greek cultures. Um, so Cass points out that Cain and his line pursue what we would now call heroic lives. So, this, so there's two different lines. There's the line of Seth in Genesis 5. There's the line of Cain, who's separated from the line of Seth. And the line of Seth is characterized by heroic lives. They accomplish great things. Just to quote um, Cass here, the line of Cain is self-reliant. It boasts the first city, inventors of the arts, and a man, Lamech, who uh, proudly sings his triumphs in dispensing violent death. The line of Adam and Seth, simpler and gentler, contains no inventors or warriors, and its most distinguished members are somehow closer to God. So the offspring of Seth don't have great deeds, per se, on their resume. They live long but very modest lives. The person of note in that line is Enoch, who walks with God and was no more, and then the Seth line leads to Noah, who's the righteous man, the next big story, um, who saves the world, but just by doing something that he hears a voice tell him to do. In particular, there's no violence in Seth li Seth's line. It's due, due to the long lifespans until Adam finally dies at age 930. So nine generations are alive at the same time we'll come back to that but first remember all the heroic deeds are off stage not of interest to the author of Genesis far away the descendants of Cain uh, but the Bible is critiquing the heroic through this literary technique warfare actually is the context of human heroic deeds and that is actually the case uh, our last standing like heroes you know congressmen no pastors no doctors and lawyers they're all corrupt you know whatever but war heroes you know the green berets who come home and get the medals and and the and the POWs except for certain leaders who don't think that's very impressive like the war heroes are our last standing heroes. If we want to do something great, what do we do? We declare a war. 
It's a war on poverty. It's a war on drugs. We, we execute culture wars to save civilization. Um, in the business world, it's all cutthroat competition that derives the heroic deeds that we celebrate. You know, two guys in a garage working like fiends. They went to Stanford, but they dropped out early because they had an idea and they come up with this genius idea and, they, and they, they finally, they draw some venture capital and then they move into their first rented space and then the business takes off and then eventually, like they're in really nice quarters and they bring in the big eight, um, you know, accounting firm to do the valuation for the liquidity event and they go public and then they're multi-billionaires and then this guy in a garage wearing t-shirts is making a tour of all 50 states as if he were running for president and you know congressional oversight of that guy well no problem he's bigger than any nation state they can't touch you I'm not talking about anyone in particular any particular situation but like that's our heroic ideal in business and it's all based on this cutthroat competition kind of warfare model and it's like not to say we're not called to do big difficult things that require courage and fortitude and wisdom that we never knew we had and that suddenly it's just there for us for a moment and you know rising to dramatic occasions has to happen sure every now and then but like the most significant things that we do um, the things that people comment on at your memorial service if you get people saying nice things about you what are those things those aren't the heroic deeds they're the little things that you did day after day after day and over a steady accumulation um, made a difference in people's lives and they wanted to be around you. You know, even the big moments that we celebrate or the big, uh, the big historical movements of social change, it, they're all just like a steady accumulation of little things. Overturning the Jim Crow laws in the civil rights movement of the 60s and 70s that, and, and 50s took place in church basements on folding chairs as people just gathered and, and had coffee and chicken and and. and and spent time talking about how are we going to just say no together instead of being picked off in isolation. It wasn't a mission to the moon. There was no rocket science required. Marriage equality. You know, this is driven by gay sons and daughters telling their parents who they really are, having those risky conversations, suffering responses that are often you know, fueled by fear and ignorance, and in all those small acts of honesty and the willing to risk disapproval that really matters to you deeply, that's what over time erodes the walls of prejudice to make the world a safer place for people as they really are. The people having those difficult conversations with their parents are not feeling heroic. They're not feeling big. They're feeling small. They're feeling like diminished. But it's accomplishing something big. So our significance isn't dependent on chasing some heroic dream. It's like lending a hand to something bigger than our own private concerns. 
You know, our, our, our modest church, I mean, look around. We're not, like, we're not like a box church, except it's a square room, you know. We're not, we're not like a mega church. We don't have the stuff on the walls. I don't have like a little lip patch. I don't teach on a, you know, on a cool, you know, stool and, you know, the plexiglass thing. Like, we're not, we're not, it's not like, this is not that impressive. But our modest church is significant. Um, you know, Clint and, and Tom are here. They, they got up early and they drove from Cleveland because they want to start a church like this or find some people who can start a church like this in uh, Cleveland. Um, people around the country actually take encouragement that churches like this are starting to pop up and they actually exist. But like what actually makes it happen? It's just so ordinary. It's like you guys showing up uh, someone making coffee, someone setting up the sound equipment, passing out the bulletins, uh, preparing the communion, uh, signing up every uh, you know, month to, to uh, give online. Did you mention that um, uh, American Express is now available online? You know, I just wanted to mention that. Um, let me just close by uh, preparing to observe All Saints and All Saint, uh, Souls Day. It's a joint feast in the Christian tradition. Um, and it's a date for um, remembering uh, the loved ones, the people near and dear to us who have gone before us, who have died. Uh, from the earth we came, to the earth we return. Um, you know, like acknowledging these losses in our lives. It's really good for our soul. It, um, it unwinds something in us that gets kind of wind, uh, taught too much. Uh, rather than denying it or running from it, just, just remembering our lost loved ones, it's just good for our souls. And one of the reasons it's so good for our souls, it's, it's an embrace of our creatureliness and our connection to everybody else. I mean, that's what it means to be a human being for any length of time is we suffer losses. And the losses really hurt us. And when we acknowledge that together, this is good for our souls. You know, like old people who are aging well. I hope to become an old person aging well. What's cool about an old person when they're cool? They've, they've like, they've spent all the stupid ambition out of their system. God bless them. They did lots of things and whatever, but they don't have to prove anything. They've, they, 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 they've blown off their ambition like you blow off cortisol when you're stressed out. And they've suffered usually just a series of losses in their lives. You know, I mean, you know, like your, your grandmother is 94 years old and she, you realize she doesn't know anybody who knew her when she was a kid. That she doesn't actually have any friends left that she picked as friends who were her peers. They're, they're all gone. She suffered so many losses. And if you know grandma, you know that some of those losses were traumatic and it, it gave her like a brittle part inside that she's kind of gotten over. Um, but the net effect of all those losses in grandma, if she's aging well, is she's more gentle and she's more sympathetic and she doesn't take little things all that seriously. And she's non-judging and she's just good to be around. You relax around people like that. So Leon Cass says this crazy chapter 5 has a treasure buried and it'll bear with me and we're almost done with Cass. The complacent reader, he says, 
That's me. I've read Genesis chapter 5 so many times and missed this and just went, oh God, this is inspired. You're kidding me. I believe it. I believe it. I believe it. Oh no. This is... The complacent reader does not notice that there is more than half a century between the year 874 when Lamech is born and the year 930 when Adam dies, during which all nine generations of human beings are alive at the same time with all their myriad descendants. So try to picture what that would be like. Then suddenly, in the year 930, Adam drops dead. Next, in 987, readers can do the calculations for themselves, as we all run to do the calculations for ourselves. Enoch was not, and God took him. And in 1042, Seth also dies. The deaths of Adam and Seth in particular must have shattered their expectations and sent them reeling. Right? Nine generations of descendants, no violence. Everything's just humming along fine. And then boom, the one who remembers the garden and Yahweh and all that, gone. And then Enoch is taken away and then Seth is gone and you're like oh crap this is gonna ha this is gonna keep happening isn't it um, significant losses just throw us for a loop it's talking to John who's who lost his mom he was talking about he was driving a cab at the time he lost his mom and he was making stupid decisions some guy wanted him to go like to to like you know an hour away and usually you get the you get the money first if you're a cabbie to do that and you know because you know, John just like sure let's go and he drives him to wherever and the the guy gets out of the cab and just takes off and he's he's stiffed all the money he would never have done that except he was thrown for a loop. His mother, uh, after Nancy died, my late wife, I'm, I'm on Facebook and there's ads on Facebook and there's an ad for carb-free bread. And I'm thinking, what a great idea. I'd like to lose a few pounds. I'm going to order this carb-free bread. And I go through the thing and I get out my thing and I would, I've never ordered from a Facebook ad online. I don't know, it was like $16 for the carb-free bread and I, it, it arrives in the mail. I, I open it up. I tasted it. It didn't have any carbs in it. It was bread. It tasted awful. I'm like, somebody should be like watching me better than they're watching me. <laughs> it's like these losses, they just, they throw you for a loop. How does a community that has never known loss for nine generations, how do they deal with it when the losses finally arrive? It's like when a child experiences loss for the first time, you know? And like, I remember Grace, when she was a preschooler, our dog Spice died. And um, I was out in the backyard digging a little hole to put Spice in. And Grace, I hear later, is with Nancy on the deck watching Dad, you know, dig the hole for spice. And Nancy's trying to explain to this preschooler that her little dog died and what dying is. And dying means Daddy puts you into the ground and covers, covers it up. And she goes like, poop? <laughs> it's like, and, and you're, she's coming to grips concretely with the existential reality of death for the first time and you're like oh I wanted you to wait till you were seven 
before that happened or 12 or maybe 42 or something I, you know I like there's you're never the same after that first understanding of lost you know um, so maybe that's what's happening in this third creation story that we're we're supposed to be experiencing loss together with other people not alone and isolated there were just so many people around who were focused together Adam died Enoch was just left Seth died the whole extended human family would have known about that and would have shown up at the memorial services one of the sweetest things that happened to me recently was in October um, uh, that's the anniversary of losing uh, Nancy my first wife and um, the week I think before it was October 14th was the day Penny Johnson and Lisa Ruby and Lisa Kiriko who all loved Nancy um, texted me and said would you and Julia like to come over for dinner at Penny's house on October 14th and I'm like sure and then I realized it's October 14th that day and I was like it was just the greatest thing to be around people who kind of understood loss and shared the loss with me and Julia had lost her her husband's uh, birthday was in October late husband um, and it was just it was awesome it was that's the way it's supposed to be so for our quiet reflection time oh gosh I went long I was too interested in the topic I apologize for the length of my remarks um, I'm gonna invite you to write a name on that card that you received that um, might be just one person that you're remembering or you could put you know more than one name. Uh, Ronnie, in a moment, will be up here and uh, you can come up now. Ronnie's going to lead us in a song from a, a community in France called Taizé, and it's uh, Jesus, Remember Me When You Come Into Your Kingdom. It's um, kind of a chanty type song, Jesus, Remember Me. It's the thief crucified next to Jesus, barely knows who Jesus is. Um, during the song, we'll just invite you to come forward as you're ready and put the card with your loved one's name in the basket. Here's the basket, it's right on the altar here. And then you can go to one of four places, two places here, one there, one there, and uh, light a candle in remembrance of your loved ones. If you have ten loved ones, think of them all on that one candle because we don't have enough candles for all our lost uh, loved ones got the drill so this will take about five minutes or so we'll relax we'll be singing this song with Ronnie and then as you wish start coming up and putting your names here and lighting your candles to your kingdom. 
names on this, uh, on the pieces of paper in this bowl, represent a lot of loved ones and a lot of life. And we want to together acknowledge that all the goodness and all the life that is represented here ultimately comes from you and returns to you. And so we pray that you would um, receive with love all our memories and all our loved ones and pull this whole story together in the end. Amen.